0: Uh, We're going to do now what we do each week. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to Matthew's Gospel or any other means of the Bible, whether that's an app or an iPad or whatever, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, when you found that, if you're able, if you will stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. So Matthew says this. and he called his name Jesus." That's God's Word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly. Just ask God's blessing on this time and his Word, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, we are grateful for the revelation of Jesus to us through your Word. Um, we believe this is a living Word, not simply just some ancient historical document. but something that uh, you want to speak through us specifically today. You promise us in your Word that when you send out your Word, It doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today in whatever way we need. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, human emotions. According to psychotherapist, TikTok sensation, Matthias Barker, They're made up of four separate contributing factors. You've got your past experiences, present bodily sensations, uh, your environments, or what's currently happening around you, and then lastly, the story you tell yourself about all that data. All those things together are what create human emotions. And to illustrate this, he says to think about the emotions you experience when you're in an important job interview. So on the one hand, if you've already had a few job interviews and you've been unsuccessful, you're going to be coming into that interview like n- ner- nervous, butterflies in your stomach. That's pretty normal. But if the interviewer is kind of more blank in their expression, doesn't laugh at any of your jokes, all of a sudden those butterflies are going to very quickly turn into nausea Uh, sweating, uh, feeling like the room is spinning. And the story you're going to tell yourself about all that data is that you're doing horribly. Uh, uh, This is going to be just like all these other failed interviews. Why does this interviewer hate me? Why doesn't he know I need this job in order to live in this crazy expensive city? That's on the one side. But then, on the other hand, maybe your friend already works at the company and he got you this interview. And you know that this company is actually thinking of creating a position just for you. You might still come in with, you know, feeling nerves and and this kind of thing, butterflies, but now, if the interviewer is more blank in his expression, he doesn't laugh at your jokes or whatever it is, those nerves feel a bit more like excitement and anticipation. And the story that you tell yourself now is, I'm doing well, I'm doing well. And, And, you know, the interviewer, he's probably just trying to remain professional, doesn't want to give too much away, and you're already planning how you're going to decorate your new office. So as you can see, the, the, all these different factors, all four of these factors, there's a complex arrangement of each of them that is what brings about human emotion. And trauma, he then goes on to say, uniquely affects all of them, all four of those different areas. As numerous studies have come to demonstrate, depending on the severity, the way that our brains process data and thus experience emotion can actually be transformed at a neurological level as a result of experiencing trauma, almost as if your brain has been rewired through the experience of trauma. So if you think about the different parts of our brain and how they operate, a prefrontal cortex, kind of the, the part of our brain that is our, our rational thinking, our conscious awareness, the experience of trauma can apparently slow the processing of data in our prefrontal cortex, almost like a computer screen with too many tabs open at once, it, it slows our ability to process as a result of experiencing trauma. The hippocampus, which is result, it, it's responsible for memory recall, helping us to place events in past, present, or future, no longer functions as it is supposed to. The thalamus, which helps to organize input, helps you focus on a particular thing when you've got lots of different data going on at once, Um, now lets in way too much data at once, causing you to be flooded or overwhelmed or panicked, or restricts you receive almost no data, causing you to feel numb and kind of cut off. And then, lastly, the insular cortex, which helps you to understand what's going on inside your body at any given time. Am I tired? Do I need to go to the bathroom? Am I going to throw up? Uh, Apparently, severe trauma can actually cause the insular cortex to physically shrink in the brain. And then, obviously, these neurological changes resulting from trauma end up offending. They, they end up affecting us at a physical level, so that it's like trauma says. Barker makes you allergic to the things you love, and whether you are or not, as author and psychotherapist Bessel Van Der Kolk titled his best-selling book, "Your Body Is Absolutely Keeping Score," as you experience each one of these traumas. Now this is a bleak. Subject to talk about, I'm sure some of you are sitting there right now thinking, "Sheesh, Merry Christmas! Um, wow, I feel like you know the holidays must be wonderful at your house." And yet, if you just bear with me one moment longer, I promise this is a message about the Bible, not a trauma workshop. What studies also show is that the presence and the experience of even just one person, one loving, truly loving experience in your life. Maybe that's uh, some grandparents who take you out of a traumatic situation, take you in to live with them. Maybe it's a teacher who believes in you. The experience of one truly loving person in your life can actually untangle and begin to undo the work that trauma has inflicted on someone. Not erase what happened, but actually begin to reverse the neurological effects of trauma in someone's life. And I bring it up as we continue in our Advent teaching series this morning entitled Prepare Him Room, which, as I've said, is all about how we prepare room in our hearts and our lives for the coming of Jesus in the same way that expectant parents would prepare room in their houses for the coming of a child that they're ready to welcome. Because who we're going to see that Jesus came to be today is a Savior. He came to be a Savior, and yet... If you look at the second half of verse 21 in our passage here, he came to be a very particular kind of Savior. Right? Not as someone who just saves us from ever having to experience difficult things in our lives, but it says he came to save us from our sins. You call his name Jesus, for he will save us from our sins. Which, I don't know, can, can we just be honest with each other for a minute? Um, in the midst of the pace, that most of us, December 2020, 2022, are running at right now with work and school and holidays and class and kids and all these things combined with the COVID fatigue, which most of us are still not at all recovered from, combined with then the experiences of, of deep, painful traumas many of us have gone through in this room and continue to carry and are experiencing those neurological effects I just talked about. Save us from our sins. It sounds good, but like not all that practical or helpful, doesn't it? Isn't there something kind of more that can help me right now that Jesus can offer? And I think the reason for that, generally speaking, is because sin today for a lot of us has come to mean nothing more than all the bad stuff that you've done that God doesn't like. And not the collective trauma experienced by all of God's good creation since the fall. Have you ever thought of sin that way, as a traumatic experience that all of creation has had since sin entered into it? Which isn't for a second to suggest that we don't have personal responsibility for the acts of harm that we commit against ourselves, others, and against God. It doesn't. And yet, if you were to read that same promise that the angel gives to Joseph as, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from the trauma inflicted upon creation. Well, now, all of a sudden, I bet you'd immediately get a better sense of both the importance of Jesus coming as a Savior, as well as its continued relevance for us right up until today. Because the reality that you begin to see as you read the story of the Bible is that the introduction of sin into God's good creation, this is in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters into creation, it actually has some of the exact same effects on our, our neurology, our physiology, like how you think and how you experience the world, as trauma does on the brain. You see, it's like almost exact parallels. Uh, the introduction of sin, it's altered the way we see and process the world around us. It's diminished our ability to rightly place ourselves in time, all of which has had devastating effects on our relational health, our physical health, and it absolutely affects the story you tell yourself about everything that's going on around you. If we understood Jesus coming as being in order to save us from that as well, suddenly we begin to see Jesus, he's that one. He is that loving person who came to undo and unravel all the traumatic effects of sin in our lives and in this world through a loving encounter with him. And that's something I think we'd absolutely want to make room for. So in order to help us better understand this promise of Jesus coming as a Savior, and actually kind of look at the context and the circumstances in which that promise was given, I want to look at this passage in just two ways. I want to talk about the context of salvation, and then the confirmation of salvation. Just those two things. The context and the confirmation of salvation. So if you close your Bible, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it again? Follow along with me as we go through this passage. Continue to look at who Jesus came to be and what it looks like to prepare room in our hearts for him this Christmas. Okay, so let's look first of all at the context of salvation. The context of salvation, the immediate context of the promise of Jesus coming as Savior, as you see from this kind of well-known Christmas passage from Matthew's Gospel. The context is the story of Jesus' earthly adoptive father, Joseph. That's the context of where this promise of Jesus coming as a Savior is. Very little is actually known about Joseph, aside from the fact that he was a carpenter. Uh, We see that he was in the family line of King David. And as we see from Joseph's character in particular here, he was a just or righteous as well as a compassionate man. But other than that, we know almost nothing about Joseph. And in fact, after a small little snapshot of him that we see in Luke chapter 2, where Jesus uh, is brought to Jerusalem by Mary and Joseph when he's 12, we don't hear anything else about Joseph, which means almost certainly that Joseph died sometime during Jesus' teenage years. But with that being said, what we learn about Joseph, even from this very short snapshot of him, is actually quite a lot. We see that Jesus' earthly father demonstrates incredible character, actually. Both before he takes Mary to be his wife, as well as after he determines to take her on as his wife and adopt Jesus as his son. And the reason is because we don't necessarily get this today, but historically speaking in this time and culture, being uh, engaged to someone or betrothed, as it's called here, was actually seen on the same level as marriage. The exact same importance once you became betrothed to someone. Now, you still didn't live with that person. You didn't sleep together until you were married. But you were seen as married even though you were just simply engaged to them. That was the level of how they saw it. It's the reason both why you see Mary and Joseph continually referred to as husband and wife, even though they're not married yet, and it's why divorce was necessary to sever their relationship once Mary was found to be with child and not just kind of break off the engagement. And yet in spite of the fact that Joseph is being betrayed by his fiance, you might even say experience the trauma of betrayal, for obviously Joseph hasn't been told the circumstances under which Mary became pregnant yet. He's probably not all that interested. He just knows she is. Even though he's been betrayed by her, you see him still striving both to honor God in his behavior. Adultery can't be ignored. And yet he's still trying to care for and protect Mary at the same time. Doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace. I think that in itself actually shows us a great deal about the, the character of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. But here's something else we actually often don't consider about Joseph. Even after the, the, the angel reveals to Joseph in verses 20 and 21, Mary hasn't been unfaithful. The, the child is this promised Messiah conceived by the Holy Spirit, not some other man. In choosing to be obedient to the angel's revelation, Joseph is still accepting their reproach of his community. Who can clearly, they can count the calendar months, right? When they get married and five months later, hey, there's a baby boy here. Like, they, they know how it works, right? I think we often get this idea when we read the Bible, we read things like the virgin birth. We think, well, you know, they believed stuff like that back then. No, they didn't. Actually, that's they they knew where babies come from, where they didn't, and they knew how long it takes. So that's that's the reason Joseph is wanting to divorce Mary, because he knows, he knows how pregnancy comes about, which means Joseph is taking on the reproach of an offense he didn't even commit for the love of his bride. An action unmistakably in line with what his adopted son Jesus will later carry out for the sins of the whole world. He takes on the reproach of an offense he didn't even commit for love of his bride. But as to the revelation of Jesus as Savior, you see that specifically in verse 21. Look with me there. After telling Joseph not to be afraid, go ahead with the wedding, the true origin of Mary's pregnancy, the angel says this She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, that name, Jesus, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, which means God saves. That's literally what Jesus' name means. God saves. I love what. F.D. Bruner commented about the meaning of Jesus' name in particular, noting, in these two words of Jesus' names, God and saves, the church has believed we possess the two deepest definitions of Christological truth, who Jesus essentially is, God, and what Jesus essentially does, saves. But when you zoom out from the immediate context into the wider historical context of the promise of Jesus' coming, where you see that originate is actually all the way back at the beginning, when sin first entered into God's good creation in Genesis chapter 3, which actually says a great deal about the nature and character of God as well, for there, in the context of His own betrayal by Adam and Eve, God promises to send a rescuer to undo all the trauma that sin had and would continue to inflict on his good creation. Saying to the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The simplest interpretation of that prophecy simply being, I'm going to send a rescuer who's going to undo all the mess you've caused here. You're going to wound him in the process, but he's going to crush your head, ultimately defeating you. And what the angel in our passage is ultimately saying to Joseph now here is that Savior that God promised all the way back at the beginning, he's here. He's here. But before moving on, what I want to just pause and, and really highlight for us just for a moment again is what, the con- is, is what the context in which Jesus' salvation is revealed reveals about the nature and character of our God. Because, again, as I just finished pointing out, in the immediate context of the revelation of Jesus as Savior, as well as the broader historical context of that same revelation of the promise of His coming, a significant factor of the context you see in both of those contexts and of the revelation is betrayal. Both of those promises are made in the context of betrayal. That is, when you would be least likely to see salvation and restoration being offered. In the midst of betrayal. And I point that out as we consider what it looks like to prepare room in our hearts and lives for Jesus today, because sometimes what we wrongly conclude, like that well known adage found nowhere in the Bible states it, is that God helps those who help themselves. That's where we often land. And we get that. We, we, we kind of just have this idea that God sets his love on me. He, he comes to rescue and restore me when I've cleaned myself up enough, when I stop doing that behavior, when, I, when I've made myself worthy enough. Then he comes in and rescues and restores and saves me. And what I said last week, I tried to state it as plainly as I could. I'll say it again. The reason we often believe that is because we've been presented with a gospel message that starts in Genesis 3 and not Genesis 1. Because when we begin where the Bible begins, we see God promises salvation in Jesus, in Genesis 3, to a treasured creation, to men and women made beautifully in His image and likeness. You could even say He presents the message of salvation to His bride, which He already prizes, and now He's simply promising to save and restore after the trauma of sin's infection here which hopefully just helps you to see that regardless of whatever context you're in this morning, whatever context in which you find yourself, that in no way restricts or inhibits you from Jesus' offer of salvation or his ability to save. Okay, so that's the context of salvation. Last thing I want to look at together with you is the confirmation of salvation confirmation of salvation and the big idea here is that not only does God promise to send Jesus as a savior he actually confirms that he's come he wants to make sure you know okay this has really happened both for Joseph he does that here in the passage he also does it now for every one of us who gets to read these gospel accounts going forward from the time they were written and where you see that if you look now at verses 22 and 23 Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and he quotes this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, some of you might remember when we started our series back through the gospel of Matthew. I know it feels like it was like 30 years ago we started that, but... When we started that, I told you that one of the ways Matthew is often referred to is it's a gospel of fulfillment. And the reason it's called that is because there's a number of different places, 12 to be exact, where Matthew describes something about Jesus' coming and then tells his readers this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, and then he quotes some Old Testament prophecy that is fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. So that's why it's often called a gospel of fulfillment. And what Matthew is clearly pointing to here is that Mary conceiving a child by the Holy Spirit is a confirmation that Jesus is God's promised rescuer. He is God's presence now among His people come to fix what was broken by sin's trauma. Or to say it another way, the circumstances that looked so wrong to Joseph were the exact means by which God was using in order to accomplish His saving purposes. Now yes, if you look at... end of verse 21. I note You notice that the quotes of what the angel is saying, they end at verse 21. So you might be asking, okay, in what sense is God confirming his promise to Joseph? He doesn't get this little special commentary here. And the answer to that is actually found in verse 20. If you look a little bit further up there, when the angel informs Joseph that the child Mary is carrying is not a result of adultery, but as a result of Of the work of the Holy Spirit. That is, that the appearance of this child leading Joseph to consider divorcing Mary is not a result of Mary's unfaithfulness, but a result of God's faithfulness to keep his promise. Maybe you'd say, Okay, I still don't see it. Okay, follow me. The point is: telling Joseph that Mary's child was conceived by the Holy Spirit and not by some human relationship was confirmation of this same promise for Joseph, because Joseph, like all Israel, was already aware of and longing for this very promise to come about. They were watching for it and longing for it. So the only reason for Matthew's kind of parenthetical commentary here, all this took place to fulfill this prophecy, he's writing that essentially for us, anyone else who just wasn't as familiar with these Old Testament promises as Joseph was. But Joseph was undeniably sure of this. So the minute he finds out that this is actually the result of the Holy Spirit's work and not some relationship, some other man outside of him, he sees that's the confirmation of the promise. It's the reason you see Joseph's obedience to take Mary as his wife and adopt Jesus as his son the moment he woke up from sleep. And the adoption, actually, for those of you who didn't know, verse 25, when it says that Joseph named Jesus as his son in in a Hebrew equivalent, That's the equivalent of adopting Jesus into his family line, which is incidentally how Jesus comes to become from the line of David when Joseph adopts him. But the point is, it's a confirmation uh, for him, and it was clear news for Joseph that the promise of God's salvation had come in this child. Which is all well and good for Joseph. How nice for him. And yet, For you and for me today, 2,000 years later, you might be asking yourself, how can we find this same confirmation of salvation ourselves, though? How how do I get it? Because I don't know about you, but I've never had an angel show up in a dream or otherwise, uh, tell me, uh, reveal how the presently challenging circumstances that I'm working through, they're they're bringing about God's saving purposes. I've never had that happen. Have you? If you have, man, please come and talk to me after the service. I want to hear about this. Um, I've never had it happen. And yet what I have found, if I can just speak personally with you for a moment, by looking retrospectively at my life, is that what I can unquestionably see confirmation of is the transforming work of Jesus in my life from who I used to be to who I am today. Which is a confirmation of Jesus' saving work in my life. From, from a, I'm, I'm just not the same person that I used to be. From, transformed from just a, a lying, self-centered, self-focused person, traumatized by sin's curse myself and traumatizing others in the process. to someone who is now, I'm, I'm different. Genuinely concerned for both the good of others as well as God's glory above my own. Not perfectly. I don't do that perfectly, but absolutely changed. I'm different from who I used to be. Or as Mary Magdalene says so powerfully in that TV series, The Chosen, when she's talking about the difference between her life pre- and post-meeting Jesus, she says, I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. That's a confirmation. That's a confirmation when I look back at my life of the saving work of, of Jesus in my life that's always available to me. And it's available to others as well. As as I share my testimony, it's available to people who knew me before I found Jesus, before he found me, however you want to say it, and can now see the evidence of his saving and restoring work in my life. How about for you? How about for you? What is true of you today that wasn't true before meeting Jesus? How has Jesus coming to be Savior transformed your life in a way that you can now point back and see the reality of his saving work confirmed? And hear me again, it's not at all to say that the work is done. It's now complete, nothing more to be saved from, nothing more that we need increasing freedom from. It's not. But where do you see evidence of the undoing, untangling work of the one who truly loves you in the face of sin's, traumatic effects that have touched all of us? Where do you see that confirmation in your own life? We began this morning talking about sin as a collective experience of trauma, really generational trauma, experienced by all God's good creation since the fall because of the way that sin affects us in many of the same ways that trauma affects the human brain. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul famously writes this For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I think passages like this, as well as countless others in the Bible, really express both that reality as well as kind of our collective experience of trauma that sin has inflicted upon this world. Again, it doesn't relieve us from the responsibility or excuse away the responsibility of personal accountability for our own sin, the trauma that we still inflict on others, ourselves, and God. It doesn't. And Jesus came to free us from that as well. And yet when you take that understanding of sin as trauma inflicted on God's good creation and apply it to the stated purpose of Jesus' coming in our passage today, literally to save us from our sin, to save us from these experiences of trauma, it means, as the classic Christmas carol states it, Jesus came to do ultimately in his coming to be our Savior was to make his blessings known as far as sin's curse was found came to undo and unravel the traumatic effect of sin on this world, everywhere it's found, from our relational brokenness with one another, our relationship with God. He's come to undo and unravel and restore those things. Our our physical brokenness, the disease and sickness and suffering we see in this world, emotional brokenness. Every place you see sin's traumatic effect on this world, he's come to undo and unravel it with his loving expression and experience through his death on the cross, his resurrection. And as we see there in Romans, it's a salvation that all of creation, including you and I, are longing for and groaning for. Do you sense it yourself? you look around at our world today, when you think of your own life, do you sense and feel that same longing and groaning? When you think of sin as this collective experience of trauma that's causing that groaning and longing, do you see now just how relevant, as well as necessary, Jesus coming as our Savior truly is? Because the way you prepare room in your hearts for Jesus as Savior is simply to acknowledge your need of His saving grace, either for the first time or for the 50,000th time, just to acknowledge your need of His saving grace. So maybe you're here this morning, you've never understood what Christmas is even about. What, what, what are you church people so excited about about Christmas? And and, and and even though you don't understand the purpose of Jesus coming, you've still sensed that, that, that groaning. You've, you see it in your world around you, you feel it in yourself. It feels almost like PTSD from a traumatic experience you don't even remember experiencing. but You just feel it and sense it. If that's where you're at today, the way that you prepare room in your heart for Jesus is simply just to pray this. God, please apply the saving work of Jesus to my life. Begin to undo the trauma of sin in my life and heal my relational brokenness with you. And I believe that's a prayer that God will absolutely delight to answer in your life. Or maybe maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time but you've mostly understood sin just as being the bad stuff I do that God doesn't like. And I know that Jesus has come to save me from that, but you've never thought of sin as this collective experience of trauma experienced by all of creation. And so I think the way that you continue to prepare room in your heart for Jesus, if that's where you're at, is simply to maybe do that same look back at your life, to consider your life presently and what's going on and look for those places where you continue to see the traumatic effects of sin in your life, in, in the way that your thinking is being changed, the way that your relationships, the story that you tell yourself about how God sees you have been warped and, and transformed in a negative way by the, this traumatic effect of sin. And then just simply pray, ask God about whatever you see, whatever shows up. God, God I continue to engage in others, with, with others around me uh, with suspicion. I continue to see other people as competition. God, uh, I'm still drawn to things that I know are self-destructive. God, my heart continues to wander from trusting in your full acceptance of me, completely independent of my efforts, and then just saying, God, would you please apply the saving work of Jesus to this, uh, to that part, to to this way of, of, of thinking and seeing. Would you undo these traumatic effects of sin? Continue to do that undoing work in my life. It's a prayer that I know God will also very much delight to answer in your life. Because the, the hope, the true hope for all of us, created by the promise of Jesus coming as Savior, which is then confirmed in our passage here to Joseph, remains. We would have a, a, a world and a life where no more let sin and sorrows grow. We would see those things grow or thorns infesting the ground because we know he came to make his blessings know as far as sin's curse is found. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth, let, let us receive our king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Amen.